Hey there, friends. This is your host, Tom, or Robots, and this isn't a normal intro because I missed this week. I was out of town on a trip. I went to the Elder Scrolls Online. Uh, it's not really a convention. It was like a get-together and big announcement thing over in Las Vegas this last week. So I haven't had time to do a regular episode, but I'd wanted to put something out for you anyway. So I thought I would pull from some of our bonus episodes because we have so many of them at this point. And I've actually taken two. I'm giving you a look into the 1964 interview with J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, some of the things that he's commented about. You can look up this video on YouTube if you want to see it. Just look up 1964 interview with J.R.R. Tolkien. It's pretty simple. Uh, but these are the, the first two episodes I've done this. I've done it in multiple parts because the interview is fairly long. And you're going to hear the professor in his own voice answer questions after the popularity, the initial popularity of the Lord of the Rings and, and the books that he had published at the time. And you're going to hear some of my comments on this. And there are two episodes in one. So this will be a little bit longer. When the first one ends, it'll roll right over into the second. So I hope you enjoy this. This is a glimpse of some of the extra content that's out there if you're interested in checking that out. Also, speaking of patron stuff, while well, I've got you real quick, um, I'm not going to do any of the readouts for the new patrons. I'm going to hold that over till next week, so we won't have a mid-break, a, a common mid-break. Mid but I wanted you all to know that there are now t-shirts. I have some awesome t-shirts on the Patreon, patreon.com slash L-O-T-R Lorecast. Some really cool stuff, and this is for our Tier 3 VIP patrons. So if you are already a VIP patron, you will be getting one of these shirts every three months. Or if you're interested in upgrading or signing up in order to help support the show and get some really cool exclusive shirts that will not be available on the regular store or anywhere else, go check that out. There's pictures of them on the Patreon site. Just wanted to put all that out there for you. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I will be back with a regular episode next week. All right. Talk to you then. All right. Welcome back, patrons. I'm so glad you guys are here. Thank you for supporting the show. This is going to be a really fun episode because... I did this once before where we uh, took one of the interviews. The, originally, the one I did was from 1962 of Tolkien and uh, listened to it and kind of commented on it a little bit. There's another one from 1964, which is about 40 minutes long. It's really long. We're not going to get through it in this episode in its entirety, but I thought it would be a lot of fun to start out in this episode and see how far we can get. Just kind of listen through it together. I'll pause every so often in order to comment here and there. But for the most part, this is a listening to the interview together. And I would love, I would love, love, love any of your reactions to this interview, any of the things that Tolkien brings up or questions that were asked, any of your thoughts on this or any other questions you have about things that don't get fully explained that maybe I could shed some light on, or maybe we could do some research together and learn, learn more about. So here we go. I'm going to play this and, um, Every so often I'll pause it. So here, we'll just get started. Oh, and by the way, the accents in this are wonderful. Here we go. Professor Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings is one of the most remarkable works of fiction of the century. And I'm going to start with one or two questions about possible source material. For example, um, I thought that conceivably Midgard might be Middle Earth or have some connection. 
Oh, yes, they're the same word. Most people have made this mistake and think Middle Earth is this particular kind of Earth or is another planet and, uh, you know, in the science fiction sort, but it's simply an old-fashioned word for, the, for this world we live in, as imagined surrounded by the ocean. No, n- notice right here at the beginning, uh, the, the term Middle Earth, is this Midgard? Is it like the author, well, the author, the interviewer is asking, like, is this story about like this mythological story about Midgard influential in the writing of your thing. Tolkien answers, that's the same word and and answers the word question, not the, did you draw influence from the story question? This happens a lot in these interviews where Tolkien's thinking in a very specific way. He's like right off the bat, He's thinking about words and word origins. He's not thinking about story and story influence. It's so, so interesting. Anyway, let's keep going. It seemed to me that, that Middle Earth was, was, in a sense, as you say, this world we live in. But um, this world we live in at a different era. Well, no, at a different stage of imagination. Yeah. This is interesting because in The Lord of the Rings, um, particularly in the appendices, you go to great trouble to get your chronology exactly correct with respect to the four ages that you yeah. write about, yeah. but you make no attempt at all to tie this up with time as we know it today. Why is this? Because it would have been impossible. Now, no, notice, this is one of those things that a lot of people talk about, this idea that Tolkien talks about how his stories are this past of the real world and all of that, and yet, directly in this interview, right here, he denies it. He says, well, no, it's not. And then it says, well, we couldn't have tied it back. It would be impossible. There's a difference between historical, factual history and mythological uh, origins in Tolkien's mind. Uh, at least this is my interpretation of this. So when people say that the the works that Tolkien was working on, the Silmarillion, the Lord of the Rings, are a prehistory of our own world, they're done so in a mythological way, the same way that Norse mythology is a prehistory of our own world or uh, Greek mythology or some people believe Christian mythology is a depending on your perspective and, and what current living religion you you are a part of, what things you believe to be true about that. And everybody has different perspectives on this. Right. In Tolkien's mind, he would say that the Christian mythology in some cases, there are literal truths about what happened in the past. And in some cases, there are figurative truths about what happened in the past. He was Catholic. So he believes that certain things in the Bible are figuratively true and certain things in the Bible are literally true. Right. He makes a very distinct different distance. And, and, and it's part of his upbringing. It's part of who he is. It's part of his academic nature to see these things as separate. So he's basically saying you can't actually tie a literal path back to my works as if they were something that happened historically because it would be impossible. But you can draw a mythological path to it. Those are two very different things. Because you completely interfered with and, uh, and trampled one in a free invention of history and uh, an incident to one's story. Nevertheless, despite what you've just said, it seems to me that one could place most of the action, if not all of the action, within a fairly definite sort of time. It won't really work out, you know, either paleontologically or archaeologically at all, actually. I mean, you can't really relate 
the land masses I described them, satisfactorily to the land masses we know now. Nor, of course, can you uh, really have such a sort of mixed culture as I describe, which includes tobacco umbrellas and, uh, and other things to what little is known of, uh, of archaeological history. So basically he's saying, we know facts about our past. We know the way the land masses looked at every stage historically in, in our world. We know about when things like umbrellas were invented or tobacco came to Europe. We, we know all of these things. There's a mix of stuff in here, culturally, geographically, archaeologically, that does not work <laughs> historically. It just, it just doesn't. So it can't be a literal past. It can be a mythological, a figurative past that has themes and meaning and values and stories, but it can't be a literal history. I wanted people simply to get inside this story and take it, uh, uh, in a sense, of uh, uh, actual history. It's so that it feels like actual history, even if it isn't. It seemed to me that to be cut off by a vague abyss of ages had exactly the same effect as you get in a scientific story when you go to some remote part of the galaxy. They don't really explain how, but you get the sense of being far away, that's all. In a possible world, but far away. Notice the connection here to um, science, science fiction. This idea that he's doing the same thing. He's taking you, uh, in Star Wars terms, which didn't even exist yet, to a place long ago, far, far away. Where things are different and to draw the connection between here and there is very difficult and isn't even the point it's not even the point of the story this is the same sort of thing in time isn't it oh yes but in uh, what one might call science fiction the authors seldom go to the trouble anything like the trouble you've done in tying this imagined world so closely to the world as we know it because so much of this is very close to what we know, I won't say today, but in the recent historical past. Oh, yes, it, re it, it resembles some of the history of uh, Greece and Rome. As it okay, I, I need to pause here. He, he, this is interesting. Remember, this is in 1964. We don't have modern sci-fi yet. The sci-fi that they are talking about is like Buck Rogers. It's not Star Trek. Yeah, Star Wars is different. Star Wars is science fantasy. It's, it's space fantasy, which we call it space fantasy. And yeah, Star Wars does not tie back to our own planet in, in any way. There's no connection there. It is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It is a very different place, a very different time. Sci-fi as we know it today with the advent of Star Trek and some other science fiction stuff. There are some movies in the 1950s and 60s that do a little of this tying back to the way the world is now and, and extrapolating that into the future. And you even have books um, written by authors 100 years ago. But it's it's more rare. And I think that's what the author is trying to say here is that we don't you don't really get that. Well, you didn't get that until you had authors like Tolkien who were going Hey, there's a long, <laughs> this is a world that exists far away from ours in a different time period, but there's, there might be some connective tissue. Against the uh, perpetual infiltration of people out of the East, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yes, it certainly does that. But then of course, <laughs> poor man who building a story has to build it out of some of the things he himself knows. 
He doesn't rush around to Roman history and go and see what, what that happened to it. But I mean, if he's uh, been brought up as I was on ordinary history and uh, on his reading, that will be the material out of which he constructs. Basically, he's saying you have to take something, you have to start somewhere. And if the things that you know are what he calls ordinary history, the history that he learned as an Englishman in the 20th century, and 21st and 20th century, if you go back far enough. I mean, he was little back then, but uh, you get the point. That ordinary history, the thing that everyone is taught, is Greek and, and Roman history. It's the history of Europe and the history of classical times. So those things are going to work their ways into your stories. You're going to use those as building blocks because you don't have any other building blocks. That's what you have. That's it. And that's okay. I've yeah. been interested in the fact that many of the names of which you have created, thousands in, in the book, I mean literally thousands, are very close to Norse legend names. For example, Gimli is the name of, of a horn ah, of gold. That's another know? point, yeah. And this is something we talked about with the names of the dwarves connecting directly to Norse uh, poems and things like that. This particular lot of dwarves, as I call them, came from the extreme north of my geography. And therefore, in translating, as I explained in the, in the section on translation, uh, the kind of language they came up against there would be of a northern kind. The dwarves, you remember, are represented as extremely secretive people and have private names in their own secret language and public names like, like gypsies. Well, therefore, I gave the north actual Norse names, which are in Norse books. So uh, apologies here. He uses the phrase gypsies, which is slang now and not appreciated by many people. So uh, again, this is a different time and place. Um, but he, he knew them as a people group also. Uh, so there is a kind of a different perspective on that as well. Um, but notice how there's the simplicity of this. The dwarves come from a place in the north. And so they have northern influence in their names and their culture. Where is north? from where he is well nordic regions that's it <laughs> that's that's all he needed in order to draw a connection in order to create a thing it's quite different not that the, my dwarves really are at all like the dwarves of, uh, of norse imagination but there's a whole list of rather attractive uh, dwarf names in in one of the older edaic poems i'm afraid I this, this is the poem we talked about in the previous episode i simply begged them but not only in the dwarves, though, but among the descendants of the elves, the race of Numenor, it seems to me that one or two of the names relate to other things. You speak of the two trees of Valinor, Lorelin and the Telperion, if my pronunciation is anything like Laurelin, that. Laurelin and Telperion, yes, the golden... Telperion, Perion, Telperion, the, the rolling of the R's. It's so good. It's tough for me to do, but it's so good. And the golden song and the uh, and the and the white uh, silver. Have these are these in any way reflections in your world of the the great world tree, the Norse world tree? No, no, they're not like it. They're much more like the uh, the, the trees of the sun and the moon. It was covered in the far east in the in, in the great Alexander stories. Notice that he directly there is like well yeah there's a similarity there of a tree but no this that's not a, that wasn't an influence at all this other thing was. Trees play a very important part oh, throughout yeah, yeah. The, the Lord of the Rings. For example, well, the, the Malon trees 
in Le Florian and the white tree of the citadel of Minas Tirith. Oh, yes, they're all descendants, yes. These are trees that are more than trees because they oh, are yes. symbols oh. of great importance. Um, is there something in your own life, in your own background... To, they're not to... symbols to me at all. They just, <laughs> I don't work in symbols at all. Other people can find that they are symbolic. There may be symbols in my mind, but they're not symbols to me in my conscious mind at all. So this this is interesting. This is like he makes a distinction here. And we talk about this on the most recent episode. The things that the author is inputting into a story consciously, their interpretation of their own work, the reasons for why they're writing and why they're doing, and then our view and the way that we consume it and the things that we can see in it are very different. There was an interview that just came out this last week. And for those of you who are into music and popular, I guess, alternative and rock music would recognize Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. There was an interview on YouTube where he it was a very nice, long interview, and he's been writing music for 35 years now. And they, you know, one of the most popular bands of the 1990s. And the interviewer is a producer. He he does a lot in the creating of the recording of music and, and art and was asking Billy about his process in writing melodies and how that actually works. And what's so interesting is that somebody who's been doing this for 35 years doesn't understand how it works in his own mind. I mean, he was able to explain the process that he goes through, but he very, very specifically, very clearly and articulately. And this is one of the things that I like about Billy Corgan is that you could tell he's a smart guy and he thinks deeply on these subjects. Wasn't he wasn't able to say exactly where the influence for those melodies necessarily comes from. He could tell you like this riff or this rhythm or this melody was ripped from basically they stole it from some other song when that occurred and he knew it. But when it really came down to it and he was writing a new work and wasn't pulling direct influence from something else, there's this thing that subconsciously happens in his mind that he's he's not thinking like you can think and as he explained, you can think through the math of music and go, oh, well, this is a seventh note. This is a ninth note. This is a fifth. Oh, maybe I should land on the third here in order to complete the the harmony of the chord. But he's he's like on a on an emotional level. There's a place where you just create and you don't necessarily know where that comes from. It just feels right. It feels like your thing you're doing. How does this relate back to Tolkien? Tolkien, also an artist, a writer. He was doing the same things in my perspective of this. He is pulling in his subconscious mind symbolism and yet in his conscious mind, not even realizing it. His conscious mind is going, these are trees. These trees exist later in the story than these other trees. And they have features similar to these other these other trees. And in the way that I've laid out the stories, there is a direct connection between these original trees and the trees that exist later on. So he's doing the math, quote unquote, of the history of these objects in his world, right? It's a very logical, precise activity. On an emotional level, those trees have symbols. There's symbology there. They're used as symbols. I mean, in the stories themselves, the tree of Gondor is used on their armor on their, uh, I think, on the crown, maybe even. I don't remember specifically the crown, but 
it's used as a symbol to the people. He writes about it being a symbol. And yet in this moment, he answers, no, they're not symbols, at least not in my conscious mind. But in the world, they are. So on the level of him looking at his world, they're not symbolic to him, but to the people of his world, they are symbolic. See how there's different levels here? It's very, very, very interesting. I mean, Dali is stoically minded. Well, this is true, perhaps, but nevertheless, mm. you use um, the white tree of Minas Tirith as a symbol of lordship, of kingship, do you not? Oh, well, yes, yes, an emblem, certainly, yes, yes. An emblem. He's using it as an emblem, not a symbol. Again, very precise on the words here. It's an emblem. It's a thing that they imprint on them, but it's not necessarily symbolic. Yes. But not symbolic of anything more than... Well, what are the leopards of England symbolic of? I said, I take your point. <laughs> right, so, like, the, the leopard. He says leopards, but I believe, I believe he means lions? Li the lions on the... Symbols of England. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm an American. I don't know this stuff. Um, but yeah, what are they symbolic of? Well, I mean, you could say they're symbolic of a lion being the king of the the jungle. Like, that has some symbolism in it. But but maybe, I, I don't know. This is one of, what do you guys think? What do you think about this? This is, it's an interesting counter in that it, it, it doesn't sit 100% satisfactorily in in my my mind um tolkien is he's an interesting guy like the more you listen to him talk about things the more you can see that he is like he, he says even here that where he's he makes the one one line let me see if i can find it again um where he talks about being uh, i'm entirely stoically minded that's what he says i'm entirely stoically minded like i, I <laughs> which is so strange okay here let's look up stoic Stoic. The word stoic means a person who can endure pain and hardship without showing their feelings or complaining. So basically without emotion, he's very logically minded, not emotionally minded. Right. That's what he's saying here. But yet his works are imbued with such powerful emotion <laughs> it's so interesting right it's like he's writing he he feels like as he's creating his works he's writing from a place that is very logical that's very factual this is information this is what happened next this is what happened next this is what happened next but in in the creation of this something more happens there's something more going on here beyond just that can you see that? It's, it, I mean, it feels like that's the case. Otherwise, why would we be so compelled by these works? Like he's creating art. It's, it's like, um, it's like somebody who's painting a paint by numbers, right? Like they're filling in each of the colors and they're just, they're just logically going through the process. Oh, this is where the red goes. This is where the, the blue goes. This is wherever, but they're such a good artist that they can't get away from actually painting the method of their painting works in a way where even though they're just filling in the colors in the right spots the way they use their brush the way they blend their colors brings out something more in that painting than than they may even intended to input in the beginning this is the feeling i get from this interview it's interesting it's interesting he's such an interesting guy 
it's like he was so focused on the rational side of his thought that he didn't realize how emotive he was. And maybe like the symbolism, it's something that just kind of snuck in. I don't know. These are these this is the boundary of things that are hard to you can't prove these things. It's hard to hard to back them up. But let me know what you guys think. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. This is only the first five minutes. We're going to get to more of these in the future. So let me know if you enjoyed this episode as well. And thank you so much for your support. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Uh, holidays. If you're celebrating holidays, hope those go go well. And I will see you guys next time. All right. See you later. So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, okay, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like a 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. Patrons, welcome back. This is uh, the bonus episode for episode 45, and I'm so glad you guys are here. I I love doing these. I love having, these are like our little chats together, and I love responses to them as well. If you guys have any other thoughts on any of these, please chime in on the Patreon. Um, but I, I figured we would uh, dive back in to the interview that we did a few weeks ago, uh, Tolkien's 1964 interview and um, with the BBC. And we, you know, we just talked about Mim and the betrayal of Turin and all of that. And that's pretty terrible stuff. So let's get into something a little bit more mm, uh, fun, I guess. Fun's the right word. Anyway, I'm going to stop yammering and let's pick up where we left off. They were talking about symbolism when we last left this conversation. So let's see what comes next. <laughs> now, the, the rangers, they protect men and hobbits from Sauron's servants, but particularly... They seem to have a fondness for the Shire. Have you a particular fondness for these comfortable, homely things of life that the Shire embodies? Now, um, let's just pause there. Interesting point, this idea that the Rangers have a fondness for the Shire. Uh, it's one of... Uh, it. This is one of those in, interesting details where it's like, okay, is it because they have a fondness for hobbits? Probably not. It's because it is one of the areas in the north that is still safe and secure and actually has people doing regular everyday things. It's a civilized area and much of the North is now wild. And so the Rangers are looking over the civilized areas. That's my take on it. Um, 
outside of characters like Aragorn who are specifically looking for hobbits or Gandalf who isn't a ranger but also cares for the hobbits very specifically but we'll leave that where it is he he asks basically do you have a fondness for the shire yourself so here we go that you know home and pipe and fire and bed the homely virtues haven't you <laughs> haven't you professor yes, of course. Yes, 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 yes. you have a particular fondness then yes. for hobbits that's what i feel in, i feel at home I, the, the shire is very like the kind of world in which i first became aware of things very like so very like the world where he first became aware of things. Um, this agrarian lifestyle, a smaller like village kind of scenes, those kinds of things, right? And he grew up in South Africa and then moved to the UK. And so you get a kind of a glimpse here of this fondness of his past and his childhood, which is which is pretty cool. It goes on. Which was perhaps more poignant to me because I wasn't born in it. I was born in Bloemfontein, South Africa. I was very young when I got back, but at the same time, it bites into your memory and imagination, even if, you, even if you don't think it has. If your first Christmas tree is a wilting eucalyptus, and if you're normally troubled by heat and sand, then to have just at the edge of your imagination is opening out, suddenly find yourself in a quiet Warwickshire village. I think it engenders a particular love of, of what you might call central Midland uh, English countryside based on good water stones and elm trees and small quiet rivers and so on and of course sort of rustic people about you see that the description there he, he goes from that one location and then just as he's old enough to start being aware of the world around him moves to england and this fondness of small quiet rivers and rustic people and the green countryside and the, you know, the hedgerows and the uh, the types of buildings and, and those kinds of things. And you can see the similarity of that in the Shire, which uh, there's there's a certain sense of homeliness and warmth and comfort in that. Even for somebody like me, I've never lived there. I live in Florida. We've got palm trees. We've got sand. We've got very hot summers, very wet, hot summers. Man, that sounds like a that is a movie. Um, <laughs> but then we also have, you know, these temperate winters, which are much nicer this time of year is actually great because it doesn't get up above like 83 degrees on a hot day and on a cold day, it'll be down to freezing. So it's, it's not terrible. Um, but enough about me. Let's hear more about the professor. At what age did you come to England? I was opposed when I was landing on about three and a half. Pretty poignant, of course, because you see one of the things why people say they don't remember is because it's like constantly photographing the same thing on the same plate. Slight changes simply make a blur. But if a child's had a sudden break like that, uh, it's conscious. I love, I love his, uh, he, he, this is one of the few moments where he travels into, uh, like psychology or something. And he's, he's talking about being three and a half years old. And the idea that like most children don't really have clear memories at that age of things going on. And it's because their lives are mostly the same. And when things are mostly the same, nothing stands out. Nothing really gets captured in a different way, like film on the same plate. But for him, there is such a stark difference. Did I say stark? Stark difference between South Africa and that environment and then the English environment that he moved to, that that made a profound impact on him as a child, which is interesting. And he's aware of this, which is really cool. What he tries to do is to... um fit the new memories onto the old. 
I've got a perfectly clear, vivid picture of a house, but I now know that it's a beautifully worked out pastiche of my own home in Bloomfordale and my grandmother's house in Birmingham. Because I can still remember going down the road in Birmingham and wondering what had happened to the gallery, what had happened to the balcony. So constantly I do remember things extremely early. I can remember bathing in the Indian Ocean when I was not quite two and I remember it very clearly. I'm going to return again also yeah, to yeah. This, this business of memory and, and, and um, yeah. looking back a great distance. Let me turn to another subject for a moment. Um, Frodo accepts the burden of the ring yeah. and he embodies as a character the virtues of long-suffering and perseverance and by his actions, one might almost say in the Buddhist sense, he acquires merit. Notice the, the phrases here, long-suffering and perseverance. Long-suffering and perseverance as being meritable qualities. The idea that like long-suffering is a good thing. I, I believe this is kind of uh, more of the Catholicism side of that perspective. Um, I'm not sure in our modern age, long-suffering you would think as being a merit, especially if you could stop it from happening somehow. But uh, that's interesting. But then he moves, the interviewer says, uh, his, and one might almost say that in the Buddhist sense, he acquires merit. Like there's value in what he's doing and he's accumulating merit. And then it goes on. He becomes, in fact, almost a Christ figure. Why did you choose a halfling, a hobbit, for this role? I didn't. I didn't do much choosing. I wrote the hobbit choosing. All I was trying to do in the role is to carry on from the point where the, where the hobbit left off. I love that. I love that. I love that. He's like, he's like, what? <laughs> did, why did you choose him for this role? And... <laughs> Professor Tolkien here is like, well, I didn't. I just kept writing a story, <laughs> which is so true to my understanding of how he wrote these things. Is is he didn't he didn't think through them like a like a grand work and go, okay, we need a central character who can carry the burden of the ring and who can who will be a stand-in in Christ-like ways. I mean, there are some others, Gandalf and Aragorn, but it. it it's, it didn't work in that direction, right? The interviewer is seeing this as a, uh, you've got the whole forest in front of you and now you're zooming into the trees. And Tolkien himself is like, I was just wandering through the forest and this is what I found. <laughs> I love that. Well, then I got hobbits on my hand, didn't I? Indeed, but there's nothing particularly Christ-like about Bilbo. Oh, no. No, no. It seemed to me strange that this small hobbit from a small well, I and say that he was Christ-like. I think as a person, but uh, but of course he has some some of the features of Christ. I guess accepting a, a perhaps I've exaggerated. Burden, accepting a burden, but because he... But in the face of the most appalling danger, he struggles on and continues and and wins through. But that seems well. I thought it was more like an allegory of the human race. I've always been impressed. We are here surviving because of the indomitable courage of quite small people against impossible odds, jungles, volcanoes, wild beasts. They struggle hard, almost blindly in a way. I love this. We've talked about allegory and how he was avoiding working in, especially things like religious allegory into his works. Uh, conversations between Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis, for example, where Lewis was very willing to put in Christian allegory directly into his works. And Tolkien very much avoided that. He he didn't like the way allegory smelled. And yet, I guess smelled feels like something that might 
be said about that? I don't know. Um, but in this sense, he's like, Frodo is more, he's less of an allegory for Christ and more of an allegory for humanity altogether. This fact that we carry on in the midst of whatever terribleness. And he cites things like you know, settling jungles or traveling through jungles or volcanoes or wild beasts and those kinds of things. Um, I'm surprised here he didn't mention things like war. Uh, it's 1964, so we're two decades after the World War II, right? Did I say the World War II? World War II. And um, it's been a very long time since World War One. So maybe war wasn't so much on his mind at the time. But I feel like that's also part of the core of where this might come from. Frodo had very little idea, really. Because he, by the time he came to the end of the quest, he was beginning to understand... Things very much more. I thought the wisest remark in the whole book was that where Elrond says that the um, the wheels of the world are turned with the small hands, while the great are looking elsewhere, and they turn because they have to, because it's the daily job. This he keeps on going on to this point that it's the small people, it's the little people of the world who actually make things happen. It's not the great and powerful, and that I mean that's very much a theme in his works, but. I I have to wonder, like, do you perceive that as an actuality of existence, of reality, of the way our world works? It seems like this might be a really solid insight into the nature of the way the world works, because it's the masses, it's the individuals, it's the all the little people doing the things that we just do because we're people that actually moves the world forward. The maybe this is a response, and this just occurs to me uh, about things like World War II, in the sense that, like, the great and powerful. So, for example, Hitler decides he wants to take over the world, basically, right, and do these terrible things. And yes, for a time, that changes the world, and and echoes echoes of that change the world as well. But it's the masses of the small people, the little people, who stand against that that are able to keep it from happening and put the world back together. And so that on a daily basis, most of our lives are fairly similar to what they were before. But you could also say that this makes sense coming from an English professor in the 20th century where England, although they suffered, things worked out by 1964, everything was fine again. Right. Like the economy was up. Everything was doing fine. People were just working their jobs. There's not seemingly any more suffering now than there ever was before. In fact, more people are probably doing okay. Maybe that's part of the perspective as well. It's interesting because everything is from a time and place and from a perspective. I think there are other people who would say the little people have absolutely no sway over things and that things are very much controlled by the powerful and the few. So you could argue it both ways. What do you think? Did you intend in the Lord of the Rings that certain races should embody certain principles, the elves' wisdom, the dwarfs' craftsmanship, men, husbandry and battle and so forth? Didn't intend it, but when you've got these people on your hands, you've got to make them different, haven't you? Well, of course, as we all know, ultimately, we've only got uh, only got humanity to work with. It's the only clay we've got. And, and, of course, any races you make, if they're speaking and thinking, are, what, 
taken from certain parts of humanity as one knows it, with slight alterations of, of emphasis. That's all you can do, isn't it? Really, ultimately. He, I love this because he's like, he's like, what else would you do? <laughs> How else would you make different races different? They're all like thinking creatures. They're all basically variations of human because that's what they are, right? And so you have to emphasize certain things. Like these ones live longer. These ones are wiser. These ones uh, like to bur burrow more in the ground than the average other peoples out there. You know, like how else do you, you can't just give them something that doesn't exist in humanity at all is kind of his perspective. And I suppose you could, but then they would be very, very hard to relate to. Because the elves are simply, uh, in its sense, the expression certain, not really wholly legitimate desires human race has about itself. We should all, or at least... Uh, Large part of the human race would like to uh, have greater power of mind, greater power of art, by which I mean that the gap between the conception and the power of execution should be shortened. We should like that, and we should like, of course, longer time, if not indefinite time, which to, to go on knowing more and making more. Well, therefore... This is, this is amazing, because he, as a scholar and an artist, these are clearly reasons why he would want to live longer and have... And, and and abilities that he would want to have, right? Greater powers of mind, wisdom, the ability to better do your arts, like all of these things, the things that he sees as being held up and in his representation of the elves, I think on a psychological level are things that he desires. He wishes as a scholar and an artist to be able to do those things better or have a longer time with which to explore them because he enjoys knowledge and understanding it, that, that I didn't, I hadn't thought about this before, but it makes sense. The elves on some, in some ways are the, um, the very positive things that he admires about the things humans can do instead of some of the other things humans can do, which other types of people would admire more so than those things. It's interesting. We make the elves, uh, Immortal in a sense, I had to use immortal, but I didn't mean that they were eternally immortal, that merely that they are very longevity, and their longevity probably lasts as long as the inhabitability of the earth. This is another one of those notes where he talks about how the elves aren't eternal, but they are bound to the existence of the earth. They show up and then they live until the end of the earth, the end of time. And then they're gone. They go away with it. Whereas the men don't necessarily work that way. The dwarves, of course, quite obviously. Uh, couldn't you say in many ways they remind you of the Jews? So this comes up. I brought this up before. And it's very specifically because Tolkien himself notes that their inspiration was from the Jews. But, but listen to his description here. All their words are Semitic, obviously, and constructed be Semitic. There's, there's a tremendous love of the, of the artifact. And, of course, the immense um, warlike capacity of the Jews, too, which we tend to forget nowadays. Now, he's, he's not talking, like, 20th century Jews. Like, w this is probably confusing to some people. Like, when was the last time Jewish people set up a war anywhere? Think about, think about the Old Testament. Go back, go back to biblical times, and you have a significantly different perspective on the Hebrews and what the Jewish people came from and the nature in which they interacted with the rest of the world. He's drawing when he's drawing allusions to the Jewish people or to any people in particular, he's not 
so much doing it in a colloquial sense of like, oh, everybody says Jews are like this, or everybody says Scottish people are like this, or whatever. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in in the literary tradition, in the historic tradition, these people are known for these types of things because that's what their stories are about. And that feels like it feels almost racist to say like, oh, the dwarves are like the Jews because our assumption, our modern minds go to this perspective of like, oh, well, he's just talking about what everybody assumes other people are like uh, based on our preconceived notions. And no, 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 he's he's actually reaching into other things as well. Uh, Hobbits are just what rustic English people made small in size because it reflects the uh, general small reach of their imagination, but it's not the small reach of their courage or latent power. I, lo- I love this, the small reach of their imagination, this idea that they are happy to be where they are and they are not interested in anything else beyond the Shire. And so they are represented as small because of the small reach of their imagination. And I don't know if that was just a fun connection he made there or if that was an original intent in the size of the hobbits. I, I doubt that. I think that there were just correlations there along the way as he was constructing, again, as he was finding his way through the trees. Um, you're obviously intensely interested in age for its own sake. I mean, Fanghorn, for example, and the Ents are, are the eldest. They have been in existence longer. Tom Bombadil is described, in fact, is he not, as the eldest? Well, he's, of course, a very odd character, but uh, we won't interfere with you now. You were asking about age. Age as... I love I love that he's like Tom Bombadil's very interesting, but I'm not going to tell you about him. Like, nope, uh, we're we're not talking about him right now. <laughs> I don't think we ever really get too much on him. I'll have to dig into that some more. Such, you're very in, in antiquity. You're greatly interested in long life, in longevity. The Eldar's descendants all have this gift of longer life. Could you expand on that? Perhaps? That's different. Longer life. That's 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 purely that's uh, that's what's. That's oneself. That's because it's a, it's an added power in this world. Also, if you are intelligent, an artistic person, it gives you more time, both either to perfect your work or to to get or to do more. That's rather different to the uh, to the appeal of antiquity itself. I love history. Notice, notice, he separates those two things. The the interviewer combines long a long history with a long life and the similarities between those things, and then he very much in very Tolkien kind of way goes a, uh, an appeal, uh, appeal, no appeal. Uh, what's the word? A, uh, a fondness for antiquity is a very different thing than the designing of a long life for a character. I, and I, I always feel you, even when you walk into a room, you really want to feel you ought to know the history, but not only the room, but the people that we walk in uh, with all this tremendous history behind us. But if you're writing a story, which you know, you're going to come to the end of that history. The history is always backward, isn't it? The history is always backward, isn't it? Like looking back through history from your current perspective rather than going through it in order. It's always backward. <laughs> he has some of these awesome insights, and I really love what he brings out in these interviews. And I wish, I mean, there's a there's a number of them out there, but I wish there were more. I wish there was more time and interest. I, I don't think in 1964, they understood that the Lord of the Rings was popular. It was selling well. And so he was getting the interest of the media, but they had no idea. They had no idea that this genius that they were talking to was going to influence fiction writing 
movies, video games for the next who knows how long. I mean, we're we're only a half a century after this, right? Plus a little bit plus. We're who knows? I mean, he may be one of the most influential authors of the 20th century and they had no idea. It's it's so funny to me. Well, we're going to have to stop there for this episode. We're uh we've got of this interview, we've got we're only about a third of the way through. There's a lot more for this one. There's a lot more for some other ones as well. And so thank you again for tuning in, for being here, for supporting the show. And here's to an awesome 2023. Hope you guys are having a wonderful new year. I'll talk to you next week. See you later. <laughs>